Nothing on this podcast is intended as legal advice nor does it create an attorney-client relationship. Please be advised that this podcast also contains spoilers and swears. Hi, welcome to Murder, She Woke, the definitive podcast about the Korean War. I'm your host, Laura. And I am your foreign correspondent, Elizabeth. First, before we get started, I just wanted to give a shout out to a new friend that I made on Friday. So I actually, for the first time, met someone who has listened to the podcast. They seem to be a big fan, specifically of episode 15, Paint Me a Murder. They were a big fan, so I just want to give them a shout out, you know, let them know, rate, review, subscribe. Elizabeth, what's going on with you? I am now 5G boosted as are you i hear which actually hasn't helped the wi-fi here in my house which is pretty shitty if you ask me so i need to talk to bill gates about that i've been lucky because i have not had any booster side effects but if i did Mm. they got swallowed up in the migraine side effects that i had over the weekend so i have been napping like a champ which means i have done nothing so you know steadily prepare for i mean it's a pretty exciting episode and without too many spoilers Lori here a star trek fan (laughs) was so excited about one of our guest stars who we're going to talk about because you know she loves Star Trek and doesn't think it's... I guess since we've run out of things to talk about, shout out to... I did not make any new friends this week. Uh, Oh, actually, no, I made a new friend with the old lady who complained at the Walgreens because... And then tried to cut me in line. (laughs) Okay. Anyway, shout out to Margaret. So, Laura, would you like to discuss this week's episode? Season 1, episode 19, Footnote to Murder. We open on the Brooklyn Bridge, and it is storming. In the, amidst the rain and the dark, we zero in on the diner, where I believe you had referred to him as Martin Short, that he reminded you of? Yeah, I, I really thought this was Martin Short. I had to look the, I, I had to look it up to confirm that it was not Martin Short, and I still believe that it is Martin Short. So we're going to be referring to him as Martin Short throughout the entirety of the episode. He's sitting there waxing philosophical about his empty pack of cigarettes and rolling himself a doobie with a straw wrapper, it appears. He was rolling he was rolling up like he was either napkin or straw paper to like a cigarette because he was out. He was using a soft pack. And as a former smoker, and you're a former smoker as well, did you ever buy soft packs? And why does anyone ever? No, and the only time is whenever that's the only thing that you can get mm-hmm. with your brand. Or if you're yeah. really drunk and that's the closest thing. It's really important to have them get all jumbly and broken and fall out <laughs> of the pack onto the bottom of your purse. <laughs> So that everything you own gets covered Uh. in tobacco. That, I think, was the (laughs) point. So anyway, he's waxing philosophical. Also, I don't know about you, but whenever I was smoking, I never ran out of cigarettes. If I was getting low on one pack, I bought a backup pack. I am not one to run out of anything ever. 
I notice when I am low on things. My beautiful bride likes to run out of everything and hey, then replace things. Yeah, I I am not like that. So anyway, this is to say that Martin Short is trying is talking to this rolled up piece of paper like it's a cigarette, and then suddenly oh shit, he has a gun. And then Jessica interrupts him, telling him she he's going to die from those cigarettes. And then it turns out this gun is a lighter. Ha ha ha. They are getting ready to go to a reception for some book award nomination or book award something or other. And they've both been nominated. She's been nominated in the mystery category, of course. And he's been nominated in the poetry category. And he makes a comment to Jessica about some some women's names. And apparently he had been to Cabot Cove and just plowed his way through all the eligible women. And probably a few non-eligible women, given him. And then kind of acts a little stunned as to why nobody would want him back in Cabot Cove, which is pretty typical of a male who plows his way through Cabot Cove. (laughs) He regales Jess with some of his poetry, which is terrible. And surprise... And turns out he's also an alcoholic with a sword umbrella, which are all very important things, believe it or not. So there's a lot going on in this scene. So we've got a lighter gun, a sword umbrella, an alcoholic, and somebody who isn't good at keeping things organized. So this is all very important. So we go to another part of town where some blue collar guy is bringing home groceries and he picks up the paper And he sees an article about some guy named Hensley Post who is going to be, I guess, emceeing the book awards. And he is not happy. And then he puts the paper down and kind of storms out. So that guy, not happy. I've nicknamed him Blue Collar. Exactly what I nicknamed him. And not because he looks blue collar. It's because he was actually wearing a blue collar shirt, like a work shirt. I just did it because I was trying to set up the contrast between him and these fancy pants people we meet in the next scene and, or the next few scenes. So he's obviously not happy with this Hemsley Post guy, or maybe he just doesn't like books. Who knows? Anyway, (laughs) we go back to fancy part of town where there is some old guy doing push-ups in a hotel room and he gets interrupted at his hotel room door by someone who I've nominated or who I've named Big Hair because she's in charge she is involved with the award ceremony ceremony somehow and she shows up for some expository dialogue this guy is Hemsley Post he's the MC he has a forthcoming book she wants to see it He's come back to my hotel room after the awards and I'll show you my book on Vietnam, baby. She said something about liter- literacy is very stimulating. Big hair kind of flirts a little bit and they're kind of, he's kind of making lecherous eyes at her across their drinks. And then all of a sudden, Dr. Pulaski, who is okay her name is alexis post she is played by the great diana Mulder, who is also plays dr pulaski on star trek the next generation so i guess we have to call her correct other people who may or may not host this podcast (laughs) i respect the great library of actors who have been through star trek one of them so they have a conversation apparently they are still married but are living separate lives and she wants money 
from his book advance because she gave him, she loaned him, quote unquote, like $274,000 because he's a bum and he hasn't written a book in seven years. So she tells him that her lawyers have drawn up a contract and if he doesn't sign it, she's going to kick his ass. He tries to get her to mend the fence, as it were, wink, wink, and she's just like, yeah, no. Probably more from the character. I don't really know her as a person. I was getting lesbo vibes. When she was on Star Trek, I got that. And then there was this whole arc where it turns out that she had, like, slept with Riker's dad, and then she told him about it. And Riker was like, why the fuck would you sleep with my dad? And she's like, because he was hot. (laughs) I was very surprised by that. And then I was like, oh, gross. Because Riker's dad was gross. We cut to a fancy hotel lobby and a very dapper Mike Brady is being a snob and talking with what I think he might think is a British accent, but it's an American trying to have a British accent. I just, I I named him pretentious slender man with bad accent because yes, I cannot place that accent. It doesn't sound British, but it doesn't sound not British. It sounds like somebody who is trying to be snooty and upper class, but in America. Yeah. It seems like he could have been in one of those like late 90s commercials with a Grey Poupon. Oh, yeah, he would be Grey Poupon guy. Or like the guy who did like Lifestyles of the Rich and Famous, that guy. So he's talking to this reporter about how he has a book coming out that's going to be amazing and everybody should just fucking stop the world, right? And he gets uh, approached by a young woman who I've named Ms. Mousy because she is this tiny woman who looks like a mouse and she's got giant glasses on and she has a short story that she's trying to foist upon people and basically Mike Brady, which is what I'm calling this guy, Robert Reed is Mike Brady and will forever be. He basically tells her to go fuck herself. And then we see Hemsley Post in the bathroom and Blue Collar accosts him. Uh, Hemsley Post refers to him as Soldier Boy. They fight. There are some allusions to the fact that Post won't return Blue Collar's calls or email. Not emails. Letters. God, what's wrong with me? (laughs) And then he makes some kind of threat and then he just kind of storms out and we're kind of left with that. He doesn't just storm out. He kung fu's the security guard. Well, the security guard... Yeah, the well, then Hemsley Post is like, oh, don't bother. He didn't get anything. And he's like, I'm being robbed. And I'm like, oh, for God's sake. Like, in the meantime, Jessica is in the same lobby where Mike Brady was trying to convince Martin Short to cheer the fuck up, which he is not doing because he is a poet and his soul is wounded. And I have a long rant about that later. So stay tuned. Miss Mousy comes up to Jessica, asks for her autograph, Voice the story on Jessica, who's too nice to say no. Says her name is Debbie Delancey, which is the nom de plume. And then they just kind of walk off. We are at a party. I guess it's like a reception where Mike Brady is being catty to this blonde lady who has written, I wrote sex books, but like a sex book, like from the perspective of a woman, it was something something edgy and racy and was Martin Short is trying to get into Big Hair's pants with crappy poetry and making using these like god-awful metaphors 
Then Hemsley Post and Mike Brady start trading barbs about Vietnam. Mike Brady saying, oh, I didn't realize you had been there for more than a week when you were a correspondent with Playboy. And Hemsley Post calls his work prissy dribble, prissy drivel. And then he talks about, oh, I have a novel and the only copies locked in my room. So fuck you. After they get into this back and forth, Martin Short is trying to talk to sex book lady. And he's reciting this poem about leaves and petals and it's all supposed to be like sex metaphors. And she's sitting there basically like just like losing her mind. She's orgasming like in the middle of the room and we're like, okay, cool. Yeah. And Hemsley Post comes over and interrupts this intimate moment by, you know, talking smack on Martin Short. He tries to steal a little sex book lady away, and now he and Martin Short start fighting. And then they actually end up fist fighting, and then Martin Short decides in the middle of this fist fight that he wants a cigarette, so he pulls out his gun lighter, (laughs) and everybody panics. Writers, am I right? So this, this this is a very eventful evening, and it seems that that's the end of the night, and we go back to Aho Hotel, the hotel. We get an exterior shot. It's daytime. Jess is looking for Hemsley Post's room and some slimy dude answers the door. She apparently took his umbrella, Hemsley Post's umbrella, by accident and wants to see if he has hers. And this guy's like, oh, why don't you come in and look for it in this crime scene? So we see Hemsley Post, who is wearing a bathrobe, and he looks like he's been skewered by a sword umbrella. And we see one other really interesting person in this scene. Yeah. Do you want to know what my headcanon is on this? I think that more... Well, this is Ron Mazak, who plays Sheriff Mort Metzger in later seasons up in Cabot Cove. And Mort Metzger is from New York City. That was the whole thing. Mm. Is this his origination story? Did I, say, did I pronounce that right? Because his name was Meyer uh-huh. in this one, uh-huh. Lieutenant Meyer. Yep. I think he had to go into witness protection. Yeah. And then he, he had already like heard of Cabot Cove through Jessica by meeting her on yeah. this case, and that's how he ended up like that. Yeah, I just have AKA Sheriff Metzger before he went into witness protection. So that's that's my headcanon. Getting into these next couple of scenes are really funny because I think they uh, kind of rely on a lot of confusion. Like it's a lot of comedic confusion. So Jessica walks into this hotel room. She sees the guy. She sees Post lying on the ground with this umbrella sword in his chest. And we learn that the guy who answered the door, slimy suit guy, he is the assistant district attorney, Melvin Comstock. He is obsessed with the press. Jessica tells the slimy ADA that she just met Hemsley Post last night at the awards reception. And then... Slimy ADA realizes that this case is going to be much better than he first anticipated. There's probably going to be a lot more press following the case. I so Jessica's just kind of moaning about If he didn't know that room. it was going to be a yeah. big deal prior to Jessica's revelation, why was he there? Oh, that's a good question. I mean, maybe... Oh, so I think my understanding was this was going to be a very unique case because of the murder weapon. And so, um, yeah, so that drew him originally. Okay, because I wasn't sure if he knew that this was a celebrity of some kind when he first showed up. That's what I had assumed. Mm-hmm. I think it's really up 
for interpretation. I don't really think that there was much of an offense. First season, you know. Things happen a lot by happenstance. So Jessica's just kind of moseying about the room, taking note of everything. And she asks about the manuscript, which was Host's latest novel. And there was only one copy locked in a briefcase in his room. Lieutenant Meyer looks under the bed for the briefcase, doesn't find it, but he finds a a hotel room key number 2441 and Jessica points out that that's odd because there's not a 24th floor in this hotel. Jessica also points out there are lipstick stains. There are lipstick stains on his sheet so he apparently had some kind of romantic rendezvous. At this point the slimy ADA is on the phone and he's like asking for the press to come to the hotel. And then, so Jessica tries to snoop around a bit and surreptitiously slip the hotel room key into her pocket, but the ADA notices and asks uh, for the key back. And then, as Jessica always does, just continues to poke around, and she sees the copy of Woman Unleashed that was signed yesterday. Jessica, again, continuing to look around and poke around. She grabs a pair of glasses off of the bed, and then she's like, got her, she's got the glasses in her hand, and she walks to the desk, and is just forging through papers, and picks up one of the papers and it cuts to the ADA who's on the phone with someone else and he's telling this person to get his headshot and his bio to, I think it was the New York Times. And Jessica interrupts to tell him about this letter from a guy named Frank Lipinski from Brooklyn. And the ADA is just kind of like shooing her. He's frazzled. He's trying to talk on the phone and she's getting all into his business. And then there's a knock on the door and I love this because Jessica's like, oh, shall I open the door? She was like, uh, uh, let me open this crime scene up to anyone who wants to wander in. The boys from the lab. <laughs> At the door, as like you said, are the boys from the lab. And then the ADA is just shoving a bunch of shit into Jessica's bag. He shoves her, he shoves the bag to her along with her umbrella, kind of tells her to get lost. And that's the end of that scene. So a lot of chaos and confusion, and that continues into the next scene where we are at the police station, and the slimy ADA is questioning Martin Short, and Jessica's there too, and Martin Short admits that he owns the umbrella that's also a sword. Uh, Slimy ADA asks about his alibi, and Martin Short says that he went to the bar after the cocktail party, and then he can't remember anything else before waking up in his hotel room at noon. Jessica then interrupts and tells the ADA that he ought to find the time, or he ought to find, he ought to find out whose lipstick was on Hensley Post sheets and who that other hotel room key belongs to. Then Lieutenant Meyer pipes up and says that the room key actually belongs to Big Hair, who's just waiting right outside. Jessica also mentions that the manuscript is missing, and then Lieutenant Meyer brings Big Hair in, and she admits that she gave Hensley Post the her hotel room key, but apparently Hensley Post never showed up, so then Big Hair called her friend... Adrian Winslow, or and they went out to dinner. So then ADA is getting kind of pissed and just flat out asks Martin Short, did you kill Hemsley Post? And then 
Martin Short, who never does anything in this episode to help himself, says, Honestly, I don't remember. And that's good enough for the ADA to arrest him. So that's what he does. And then immediately the ADA jumps on the phone with the Times. He's bragging about personally arresting Hemsley Post's murderer. And then something we don't see a whole lot is Jessica's Irish temper comes out. And she, I would not say that she yells, but she does raise her voice to the ADA and tells him that if he is too dense to find the real killer, then she will. And then she runs out the door, and Lieutenant Meyer is trying to take Martin Short to booking, and they're at the elevator, and there's a bunch of other people waiting for the elevator at the same time, and it's kind of some confusion and chaos, and Lieutenant Meyer, like, steps away to talk to Jessica, and then the elevator opens, and everyone rushes in, including Martin Short, And then the elevator closes with Martin Short in it, but Lieutenant Meyer is still talking to Jessica. So basically, Lieutenant Meyer loses his... Lieutenant Metzger has lost, a.k.a. Lieutenant Meyer, has lost Martin Short. He gets swept into a crowd of, I guess, sex workers and their customers who were swept up in some kind of sting. In the meantime, Mr. Comstock doesn't know that Martin Short has escaped. He gets to a courtroom with his new friends and the bailiff informs him that the judge doesn't want to prosecute the customers of the ladies, but only the ladies, which we will talk about later. Because Martin Short is dumb and doesn't realize what's going on, he just hears you're free to go and kind of wanders off and disappears. When Jess can't find him, she finds Big Hair instead, who's talking about only wearing her contact lenses for a few weeks, and then she admits that she had been to Hemsley Post's room before, and then she spills the beans on the argument that Hemsley Post had with Dr. Pulaski. Jess, in the next scene, goes to visit Dr. Pulaski, who explains that she and Hemsley Post have been separated for 10 years, She pretends she has no idea about the book and the advance and the money. And then she also says that he's a crappy lay. And she said writing wasn't the only way that Hemsley was burnt out. Jess goes back to the hotel and she and Martin Short have this hilarious little spectacle where they're both in the revolving door and they're trying to talk to one another, but they're in different sections of the revolving door. This is hilarious. She has to tell Martin Short to go back to the the police because now he's a fugitive and Martin Short is just like, well, okay, fine, I'll go. We go back to the police station where sex book lady is talking to uh, Melvin Comstock. She said she used to be a nerd. Everybody made fun of her because she wore glasses. Jess barges in with Martin Short shames Melvin Comstock in front of sex book lady and then sex book lady claims that she spent the night with Martin Short a something that is news to Martin Short and he spends a good part of the rest of the episode lamenting the fact that he can't remember having 
spending the night with sex book lady. He is way more concerned with remembering the night with the sex than he is more, he's like more concerned about that than going to prison. But I did appreciate the fact that the nerd or kind of the unwanted person here, you know, he's, he's getting a shout out. Like he's, you know, he's getting the hot blonde in the situation. And normally the, she called him the most <laughs> romantic man. I guess she was like residually turned on by his poetry about flower petals. Martin Short still can't remember anything. Meanwhile, Jessica is going to go on a field trip to Brooklyn. And then she pulls up in a cab on one of the sets from Live and Let Die. Blue Collar is unloading a truck. She tries to interrogate. Oh, hold on. Blue Collar totally sounds like a Bond villain. He sounds like a henchman (laughs) because he's not like fancy enough to be. Yeah, yeah. Definitely not like the number one, like not like Dr. No or Spectre or anything, but definitely like Jaws or. No, he's definitely not the brains behind the operation. But Blue Collar is definitely trying to get shit done. Yeah, so Blue Collar is the one who like kneecaps people and hits people with cars and stuff. She tries to interrogate him. He tells her that her books are kid stuff and to go away. And then she stumbles upon another really helpful coworker boss who tells her that, well, or confirms for her rather, that Blue Collar had written a book on Vietnam and that he was trying to sell it. By this time, the taxi had gone away, left just in the middle of Brooklyn. And she goes to a payphone to call some, I guess, a taxi. And then she pulls the glasses out of her purse that she stole from the crime scene. She says, these aren't mine. And then she has this aha moment. She tries to tell Melvin Comstock about it. And he just doesn't give a fuck because he thinks he's got his man. So the next scene is Bored Mike Brady hearing fools at a book signing. This is clearly below him, but somebody has to pay for his cashmere scarf. He tells Jessica after, you know, negging her books that he had dinner with a reporter friend and not big hair. The way he says it was going back to the whole Mm -hmm. queer coding, right? So in this scene, Jessica does something she's famous for, and it's actually a very common police tactic, is they will ask a question with information they know to be incorrect in order to gain correct information. Jessica says to Mike Brady, oh, so then I didn't see you at dinner last night at 21, knowing good and well that Mike Brady was not having dinner at 21 last night. And so he has to correct her and say, no, I was eating dinner at the Four Seasons. And the man that I was with was a newspaper reporter. So he had to to go out of his way, yeah, wink, wink, to let her know that that was not his gay lover. And we also get some more background on Dr. Pulaski. Because Mike Brady used to be Hemsley Post's quote-unquote private secretary. And they apparently spent time like a summer together in Florence or something and Dr. Pulaski was like jealous AF of everybody including Mike Brady which he saw fit to mention which you know another clue back in the back in the hotel lobby Miss Mousy uh, ambushes Jessica again and asks what's taking her so damn long to read her story even though it's only been a day 
She's wearing different glasses, so... Mousy not have a job. Like, she's gotta be just staying in this hotel lobby 24-7, right? It's only been, like, a day, so maybe she, like, took a long weekend or something. That plug. Jess goes to visit Big Hair, who is dressed to match her room to ask her questions about her umbrella. Apparently, Big Hair has the wrong umbrella, too. Then Jessica starts asking her questions about her dinner plans or lack thereof and a manuscript that she was hiding. It all turns out to be benign as uh, Big Hair is just a lonely lady and she was reading an unrelated manuscript and she just went to bed like a lame. And apparently that's fine. So did you catch that look, though, that Jessica gives to Big Hair as Jessica's leaving her room? Oh, the life in the fast lane is lonely and that, like, sad. Yeah, like, like, it was, like, a concerned yet comforting, like, just hang in there. It's okay, Uh, Reed. Die. And then you can be famous. You can get both. Just don't take in your idiot nephew. That will haunt you for the rest of your life. Now it seems like they've decided that based on the information about how they end up, I think it's based on Jessica's information, they decide they're going to search Blue Collar's apartment. Mm -hmm. So he does a thing that all innocent people do, which is run away. (laughs) And there's this, like, you know, chase down a fire escape. He's in the alley. And then he gets caught with Hemsley Post's briefcase, which conveniently is Hemsley Post's name on it. Again, with the monogramming. Seriously, what the hell? And... It's a very southern thing too. Blue collar admits that he is, that he killed Hemsley Post. He's not sorry that bastard stole his book. Now the next day or I guess next morning, Jessica and Martin Short are in a cab, and Martin Short is saying that he doesn't blame Frank Lipinski, Blue Collar, for killing Hemsley Post if Post actually did steal his manuscript. And Jessica acknowledges uh, Blue Collar's confession, but is still not sure that he killed Hensley Poe. For some reason, something's odd. She just, she can't put her finger on it. So then they change the subject to, you call her Miss Mousy, I call her Glasses Girl. But the, the girl who gave Jessica, you know, the short story to read. And Jessica's saying, you know, it's not a bad story. It's about a teenage girl remembering how she felt when her brother went off to war. And then Jessica pulls out, again, these glasses that somehow ended up in her purse. And she's explaining to Martin Short, she doesn't know how she has them, but she keeps meaning to get them back to ADA Comstock, and she thinks that they belong to Hemsley Post. And Martin Short takes them out of her hand and puts them on, and he's like, I don't know, if a guy like Hemsley Post bought glasses... I think he'd go for, you know, a more macho pair. Those glasses are the same ones that my grandmother had in the early 90s. Like, exact same fucking ones. Same, 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 yes. My grandmother had, I have so many pictures of my grandmother wearing those glasses. We're going to put out some pictures on the website of our grandmothers wearing those glasses. And Jessica has an... So she gives Martin Short some fare for the ride and jumps out of the car. And then the poet... Or the poet, that's what I thought I'm even scratch that. And then Martin Short asks the driver if there are any good bars around. So the next scene is so random. I mean, it's not... It's very important to the story, but... It seems random at the time. 
So Jessica jumps out of this cab to go get an eye exam. So she has presumably told the eye doctor that the pair of glasses she found at the crime scene was her glasses and she can't see. So the eye doctor is looking at like, you know, giving her the exam and looking at these glasses. And he's like, this is not your prescription at all. Your doctor back home is terrible. And then he's explaining that the left lens is for a mild astigmatism and the right lens is to correct for myopia. And he says, don't worry, I'll get you a new pair of glasses in just a few minutes. And then Jessica says, actually, I'm wondering if you can put those prescription lenses, if you can mount those in a different pair of frame. So now Jessica and Miss Mousy are having dinner to discuss her short story. Oh, because they're having tea. Apparently, Miss Mousy was at a friend's cabin last night. She goes there to write sometimes. So she was really excited when she got back and received Jessica's message that she wanted to get together and discuss her short story. And then Jessica asks the girl if she'd seen the paper. Miss Mousy's like, no. So Jessica goes on critiquing the story. She Jessica says she's made it a few notes on the bat, but she's having trouble seeing her writing. So she asks to borrow Miss Mousy's glasses. And Miss Mousy gives her gives her the glasses and says, Okay, well it probably won't help, but here you go. And then this is like the best part of the episode where Jessica does the old switcheroo. So Jessica pretends to have dropped Mousy's glasses in her lap, but when but what she's really done is she switched out Mousy's glasses for these new glasses that she had made at the optometrist's office. So Jessica pulls out these new glasses from her lap, puts them on, and says, oh yeah, that's even worse. I can't read this. And then hands the new glasses back to Miss Mouse and gives her the manuscript to read. And it was just like, oh yeah, you you read these notes yourself. So Miss Mousy puts on the glasses and reads the note and makes a comment about the note. Like, oh yeah, yeah, that note makes sense. So clearly the same prescription was in the glasses. I felt like there must, there could have been a simpler way to do this. You think so? I think she could have said, are these your glasses? You're wearing a different pair than usual. Are these your glasses? Well, yes, but then Miss Mousy. And then you'd be like, okay, Miss Mousy, then where are your other glasses? Oh, I accidentally threw those glasses in the garbage can and they're gone forever. Glasses are really expensive, Miss Mousy. Even in the 80s, why would you do that? It reminded me too much of Laura's grandma. <laughs> oh, no. My grandma's a sweet lady. You take it back. Is this is this grandma who reminds you of Jessica Fletcher grandma? Oh, cool. Yeah. We should do we should do a little bit better. Your it's grandma fine. and my grandma. <laughs> okay, I will. Now, Jessica has confirmed her suspicion that the glasses that she's been carrying around this whole time, the glasses that were found at the crime scene are, in fact, Miss Mousy's glasses. So what does this mean? So Jessica's confirmed her suspicion, so now she's got she's to prod Miss Mousy a little bit more. So she says, you know, in this story, you call your brother Joe, but his name is really Frank Lipinski, isn't it? And then they make, like, this weird, not weird, but, like, intense eye contact and then jessica says last night they arrested frank for killing hensley post and then miss mousy 
goes crazy and says, no, 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 that's not true. And then Jessica says, well, you know, he confessed, but I agree it's not true because he lied to protect you. And then she says that your glasses were found at the crime scene and I changed out these lenses to match your backup pair, which Jessica only saw Miss Mousy with her backup pair of glasses on for a total of two seconds. So how did she know which pair of lenses to buy at the eye doctor's office that would match? My guess is that unlike today, there were not as There's many options. Five, you pick pair. one through yeah. five. You can pick grandma yeah. or like tortured poet or, you know, business lady. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. You have to pick like a category and she went for like grandma. So now Miss Mousy is has admitted to killing Hemsley Post and she's now telling Jessica what happened. So Hemsley Post approached her in the hotel lobby. Apparently he saw her approaching a lot of other authors and he claimed that someone else told him about her story and he invited her back to the ho- back to his hotel room to quote unquote discuss her future. Now, Miss Mousy says that she knew what he had in mind and she wasn't sure what she was going to do, you know, possibly just trying to convince her to give him the manuscript, possibly just grab the manuscript and run. But once she got to the hotel room, he started attacking her, like sexually assaulting her. She was able to grab the umbrella and try to use it in self-defense. And at this point in the show, she's explaining what's going on, but it's kind of like a flashback. So we see what's actually happening. So she's grabbed this umbrella to use in self-defense. And so... This is the umbrella that Hemsley Post must have grabbed mistakenly at the cocktail party because it wasn't his. It was Martin Short's. And she's pointing the umbrella at Hemsley Post and kind of using it to create space. And then Hemsley Post grabs the umbrella and I guess he he must have thought that he grabbed the umbrella out of her hands completely. But in reality, he only grabbed the sheath off of the sword. So when he goes forward to continue attacking her, he actually just kind of runs into the sword, killing her. She didn't mean to kill him. It was an accident. But then she grabbed the briefcase and ran. And Jessica then tells her that she should tell the police what happened. She has a strong case for self-defense and a jury will likely see it that way too. But it probably won't even go that far because it's a pretty obvious case of self-defense. Yeah. yeah, I would call it self-defense because it was just an accident. Right, right. Like, there was no action on her part other than just holding up an umbrella. Like, he fucking ran into the because sword. All she was doing was trying to keep this guy away from her, and he basically just slipped and fell on the umbrella. Okay, and then so the next the next scene is just kind of silly. Martin Short and Jessica both won awards at that award ceremony, and Martin Short doesn't really care. He just cares about getting a drink, so he leaves the award ceremony, and Jessica chases him. They're walking about the hotel. Jessica's saying, you know, I don't, I don't want to be a nag here, but you really, really ought to do something about your drinking. And at this point, Martin Short puts a cigarette in his mouth, and then they walk over to... It's kind of like a gift shop booth 
Like, it has all the things that a gift shop in a hotel would have, but it's more, it's, like, not in its own shop. It's just a booth. Yeah. Like, it's a concession stand. Yeah. Well, it's, it's like when you go to the theater and there's, like, it's, like, the, I call it, like, a newsstand almost without newspapers. Yeah. He's at this newsstand and he's got a cigarette in his mouth and he pulls out his gun lighter to light his cigarette but the cashier thinks that it's a real gun and she screams and then she sounds like the we're getting burglarized alarm and then she hides under and the then desk. Jessica tells him he yeah. might want to give up smoking mm-hmm. too which there are lots of reasons for that and i feel like you know maybe he should just try getting yeah. it because that lighter has caused a lot yeah. of issues with him and weapons that are not really things that are also weapons i don't know i'm sure there's some psychological reason this one at first blush doesn't doesn't seem to be packed with issues but i think it it actually has quite a few that we can talk about first one i want to bring up you know just but briefly but jessica had evidence with her the whole time so she had Miss Mousy's glasses with her. And granted, at this point, once the ADA Comstock put those glasses in Jessica's purse and Jessica's carrying them all around New York, granted, the chain of custody was broken. The evidentiary value of those glasses had been diminished. Then she straight up destroys the evidence. She straight up destroys those glasses by having Miss Mousy's lenses taken out of them. Or maybe she didn't have them taken out. Maybe she just had the prescription replicate in the other pair. She said, can you put those glasses, those those lenses in a different yeah. frame? I feel like her thing was like, well, I tried to give them to the district attorney and he didn't want <laughs> them. So I guess they belong to me. I was just thinking chain of custody, chain of custody, chain of custody. And it's like, oh, no, never mind. You destroyed them. My big thing was Melvin Comstock, our district attorney here. Do you want to know what this kind of reminded me of in a really weird, indirect kind of way? What's that? The Duke Lacrosse case. Do you remember the DA in that? Yeah. So so basically what happened was an overzealous DA brought this case against people who ended up being very innocent on flimsy evidence but he did it to advance his own career and he was basically a trying to be in the media like every five minutes being like look at what a great person i am and look at it's basically trying to capitalize on a case to make his bones which was hilarious because we're not hilarious but he ended up getting disbarred and then sent to jail because he withheld evidence or, or something. He got, okay, prosecutors are rarely disbarred because of Brady violations, which to me, I mean, I think a Brady violation should be. Yeah, he withheld exculpatory DNA evidence that would have acquitted the, the defendants. And you know what? There, ha- I'm sure that there are other jurisdictions where that same thing has happened and the prosecutor has not been. Oh, no, I believe that. But I'm saying this is one of those situations where you can't help but... Because we're obviously not supposed to like this DA and we're 
we're supposed to think he's a he's a fame whore blah 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 he's overlooking all of that stuff it just kind of made me think of that and I know there are prosecutors out there that do a great job and especially ones that don't have a lot of resources and actually care about justice overzealous prosecutors is how you get people wrongfully convicted how they end up on death row like that kind of thing and even innocent people who end up taking deals because of the way like i personally think they have too much power and they don't have a lot of safeguards because it's really like you said it's really hard to get disbarred or censured or anything because they have so much discretion and also the idea that they're required to turn over evidence that's exculpatory to the defense but they get to decide if something's exculpatory or not yeah i yeah that's i would like to see harsher punishments for prosecutors that commit brady violence and yeah like some kind of review even even if it's an inter-office review because hopefully if you've got one or two bad eggs in a district attorney's office You've got one or two good eggs that will review evidence and maybe decide that this piece of evidence is exculpatory. Quotas and rates, like prosecution rates and stuff out of it. Yeah. They're they're putting something, the way the system's set up, they're putting something into certain metrics that shouldn't be there. And the people who suffer are generally people of color, poor people, and... Yeah. You better so believe English our language. And to say nothing of non-criminal matters that are just as essential, like mm-hmm. family law and exactly. some torts and that kind of thing. The fact that it's like, if you're really poor, you get somebody to make you a deal. Is that what our constitution envisioned? I hope not. But given the way the Supreme Court has been lately, that's right to counsel. What does that even mean? So, sorry for that really (laughs) cheerful deep dive into the criminal justice system. But I'm just saying, I feel like they were exaggerating this guy for comic defect. But I'm going to be honest with you. I think his behavior is more commonplace than even famous prosecutors, TV prosecutors like Jack McCoy from Law & Order. He was still a bully. He still, he was made out to be some kind of hero, but when you watch it through the lens of not the people of New York, that guy is steamrolling these people. What are your thoughts on the judge that is only interested in prosecuting sex workers and not the John? I'm not surprised because all of those Johns were wearing suits. I understood why they needed it for a plot device, but I feel like there was another way they could have done it without... Kind of almost making light of this shitty thing that happens to this day. I mean, honestly, though, I don't think they were making light of it. I think that was a thing that actually happened a lot back. No, no, I'm sure it happened. But I'm saying them using it as like a plot device, which basically enables our erstwhile character to get out of trouble. Ha ha ha. Look at this. No, actually, this is really shitty and sad. They could have had this confusion a different way. I don't know. That's, yeah, that's no, I me. saw that. And it was like a gut punch because I don't know why this one was so personal or I felt it to be so personal. But this one just hurt a little bit because I know that it happens and 
that there is no, there's no justice for this. There's no common sense for this. It is just some man judge saying that, oh, if it wasn't for these nasty prostitutes, these good God-fearing men would not have succumbed to their own temptation. Whereas the women are the ones, or the prostitutes, and that they're not all women, and they're all genders. I'm all for legalizing sex work and making it safe. But in a lot of situations, people are trafficked. These people are victims. And just the fact that they are participating in an act doesn't mean that they're necessarily culpable for it because they've basically been backed into a corner. One thing that I also kind of fell down the rabbit hole on is the idea of spouses whether legally married spouses who are not, in this case, Dr. Pulaski and Hemsley Post, there was no allusion to a prenup. They're legally married. How? And I and I looked this up and you can sue your spouse for things like breach of contract and that kind of thing. It sounded like there was not a previous contract that Dr. Pulaski loaned her husband money previously. And now that Hemsley Post has all this money from an advance, she now wants her loaned money back. But if there was no previous contract, like when you're loaning someone money, that's when you draw up a contract, not when they have the money to pay you back. That's not when you say, I want a contract. It's too late then. It's, I've never heard of spouses lending each other money. Unless they were estranged or divorced. Yeah, that one struck me as strange. And just the... Yeah. And like you said, she brought up the fact that there is... All my lawyers draw up a contract. You're going to get them to sign a contract after the fact. And you have nothing to leverage. Except maybe... She said she wouldn't have anything to leverage. Because if she... If it got to the point where if she tried to leverage it in a divorce, it's all marital property. So the judge wouldn't see it as a loan and she'd probably end up getting fucked because she appears to be more successful than he is. So yeah, there she has no recourse as far as I can tell in that situation. So Laura, did you like this episode? I I really enjoyed this episode. So it, it did that thing that I really appreciate where it gives you just enough to know who was responsible for the murder and it did it from the very beginning. So if you were paying very close attention, you pretty much have to have an identical memory, but you would notice that Miss Mousie was wearing the big, thick grandma glasses in the one scene and then in the next scene, Jessica find those grandma glasses at the crime scene. So I, I like that it, it Gave the audience enough to figure out who the murderer was. There was a sufficient number of ashtrays. What it, it was lacking is is horrendous interior design. So I am going to deduct a few points for that. Yeah. So, I mean, overall, I'm going to give it seven ashtrays. As I had alluded to before, I have firsthand experience with an alcoholic poet. My ex-boyfriend, let's just call him Steve... I doubt he's listening, but who? Not, not his real name, Steve. He wrote me a series of sonnets. Oh. I think he he wrote he wrote three. He wrote them in ser- in a different in, in a series. Oh. Two series of sonnets, three three series, and six. two trilogies. So I have six poems. <laughs> they weren't bad objectively, but they weren't good. And because. I was trying to be a good supportive girlfriend. I actually had them 
put up in matching frames and I had them on the wall by my desk. Just a way of saying I value the fact that you put time and effort. Sure. Every time he come over to me, he'd read his own poems and kind of <laughs> smile to himself. He literally called them the darling. Uh-oh. And he would, he's like, I'm here to visit my darlings. And hi, hello, not your darling wife. So he'd kind of read them with this self-satisfied expression on his face. And then he used to give them to me as Christmas presents. Wait, like he would repeatedly give them to me? Well, we spent three Christmases together. So I would get a sonnet. I got a sonnet oh. for each of the three Christmases we were together. Did- well, I got actual presents too, but. That's not a present. That's the expression of your vanity on the page. I don't even like poetry. Anyway, I liked the episode. I actually really liked Martin Short as a character because I thought he was kind of goofy, but in a relatable way. But he was... He was insufferable, but good-natured enough that you didn't really mind. So I appreciated that, especially after living with an artist-slash-poet-slash-writer who was always angry because he wasn't as successful as he wanted to be. And how many successful poets are there, really? What was her name? But good news is, is whenever I dumped him, I threw the darlings away. You should have published them under your own name. Oh, wait, that just kind of brings us full circle. It's funny because I actually got published before he did. Mr. Aspiring Writer. Anyway, I give it seven asterisks just because I thought all the characters were interesting. They were typecast, but they were kind of interestingly typecast. They were kind of laughing at themselves. Yeah. And anytime weapons are disguised as things and things are made to look like weapons, I'm a big fan. Yeah, that's true. That's true. And who are you giving the Golden Grady to? So I wanted to give the Golden Grady to Martin Short just because he seems kind of Grady-ish. Yeah. But I'm going to be honest with you. I'm going to give it to uh, Blue Collar. Oh, Blue, Col- Blue Collar's boss? Okay, let's hear it. Yeah, the guy, the guy, I assumed it was his boss, but the guy in Brooklyn who was telling Jess all about the book uh- for the simple reason that this guy just comes here, spills the beans, and doesn't give it a second thought. He's like, who's this lady? I don't know. And I tell her everything about this, something Grady would absolutely that's, fucking do. Like if somebody pressed him for information, he would just be like, here's everything I know. I don't know who you are. So my my golden Grady is Blue Collar's boss. That's- what about you? So... I'm going to have to give it to Blue Collar just for the fact that he, I would assume, worked very hard on the definitive novel on the Korean War. War. But yet he sends his only copy to someone else. He post-wrote the Korean novel and then he stole the Vietnam from Blue Collar. So who, A... A, who only keeps one copy of anything? This is why you have the cloud. I know there's not a cloud back in 1984, but there were floppy disks, right? Copier. There were what there were. There were safe deposit box. And, and there were copy machines like Xeroxes. Yes. You could even go to, if you didn't have one available to you, you could go to a store that would copy it for you for money. Yes. And so... Did he just, like, mail? I mean, I'm assuming he just put this novel in the mail and just assumed everything would go okay. Have you had to deal with the post office lately? You can't just put shit in the mail and expect everything to turn out. Yeah, this is our show. And I'm really sorry that it was mostly a bummer at the end. But... 
the legal system is often a bummer, which is why you shouldn't try to get out of jury duty, because if smart people get out of jury duty, then you get people who acquit people like Kyle Rittenhouse and here we On other people. That's what we are here to say. Exactly. It's like somebody says something shit, you turn around and say, that's a shitty thing to say. Why did you say it? Chances are, they will not know what to say. And I think we should go because we've been talking for a very long time. But thank you for listening. And as always, stay woke.